Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part two of a four-part series entitled Unorthodox Episodes from the Talmud. The lecture was recorded in 2020 for Caulfield Shul as part of a Zoom series. For podcast listeners wishing to watch the Zoom presentation, please visit the episode webpage at davidsolomon.online where you will find a link to the YouTube video recording. And uh, we are going to continue this uh, fascinating episode that we started last week. I know it wasn't really a contained uh, lesson, really, a uh, contained text, uh, because we're only really uh, a third of the way through it. But I'm, I'll remind us where we were up to, because it's such a fascinating uh, piece of Gemara that really uh, brings up so many issues especially if we think of the word unorthodox, because we were discussing uh, the episode of Rav Kahana, one of the great rabbis of uh, Babylonia during the third century. He was a student of Rav. Rav himself, Abba Aricha, had come to Babylonia in around the year uh, 220 uh, to establish the Academy of Sura and to establish... Uh, pretty much what was going to become the Talmudic tradition of Babylonia that went on to create the Talmud. And his, one of his primary students was Rav Kahana. When uh, Rav left uh, the land of Israel to go to Babylonia, uh, he had been a student of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the last great Tana, the person who actually codified the Mishnah, and when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi passed away, he had a young, very young student uh, who was only 15 years old at the time called Rav Yochanan. Rav Yochanan went on to become the greatest sage of his generation in uh, the land of Israel, in what was then uh, called Palestine, and established an academy at Tiberias. So we had a, a picture now where we have two great centers of learning. The uh, academies, the growing dynamic academies of Rav and Shmuel in Babylonia, of Sura and the Nahardea, and we had the Academy of Rav Yochanan in Tiberias. Rav Yochanan recognized no foreign scholar as uh, being uh, someone whose authority he had to pay any attention to, except for Rav, except for Abaricha, who had been a student of Rav Yehuda Hanasi, who'd gone to Babylon to set up the academies, but uh, Rav Yochanan was pretty self-contained and no one really matched him. He did, however, have a, a very, very fascinating brother-in-law, Rabbi Yochanan. I'm giving all this background because these are personalities that are going to emerge in the story. Rav Yochanan in Tiberias had a brother-in-law called Resh Lakish. This is a very famous individual, Resh Lakish, another one of the great uh, third century Palestinian Amoraim, Reish Lakish, who uh, some of you might know um, because he, his name is, would be familiar to you when preparing food for Shabbat. He used to originally be uh, a highway robber, and uh, but he came close to Torah as a result of his encounters with Rabbi Yochanan and ended up marrying Rabbi Yochanan's sister. So it was in fact his brother-in-law. 
And the two of them pretty much ran the academy at Tiberius. They were on one level uh, related, on another level they were colleagues, on another level they were also competitors, uh, each one uh, trying to outsmart the other. And what we learn from the Talmud of the third century as the whole picture of Talmudic learning and these academies are being built and they had different styles, the academies in Babylonia and the academies in, in the land of Israel. Uh, what we learn is that they really, really thrived on competition and they were pretty pleased with themselves and it would take a lot for anyone coming from somewhere else to uh, prove that they were clever enough uh, to be allowed into uh, or, or to be considered worthy of having a colleague status in these academies. So that background is something that we need to understand. Otherwise, the story as it unfolds, if you don't understand those particular tensions, uh, it will be difficult to follow. So if you would recall last week, uh, we started with the story of a guy who came before a court saying that he was intent on um, revealing to the authorities the whereabouts of his neighbor's straw um, so that the authorities could take that straw. This was seen as a tremendous affront to Jewish uh, integrity and is, became ultimately that story itself became just those few lines became the basis of the laws of Mesira as they evolved in later halakha, the laws of handing over the life and property of Jewish people to the authorities. And Rav Kahana was so incensed by this uh, individual's um, obstinacy and uh, chutzpah that he killed him in the court, as you would recall. And Rav sitting there going, well, that's not good. You have to go to Israel. So as we discussed last week, he took the first, first El Al flight to Tel Aviv. No, he didn't because there weren't any aeroplanes. But he, he, he got up and he ran and he made the 600-mile uh, journey to the land of Israel from, uh, from Babylonia. And uh, before he went, before he went, and he did that because Rav was worried that the authorities in Babylonia would think that the Jews are rebelling because they apparently, what we understand in the historical background there, is that the uh, autonomy to apply capital punishment uh, was under review by the authorities, that the Jewish communities could uh, have that autonomy, and they didn't want the authorities to think that the Jewish community was rebelling. So Rav Kahana picked himself up and he went. We looked last week at the whole astonishing fact that uh, he wasn't uh, considered to have done anything wrong from the court's point of view, but that the problem was optics and the problem was uh, political. But Rav warned him, he said, Israel, get up and go to Israel, and take upon yourself, accept upon yourself, when you get to Rabbi Yochanan's academy in uh, the land of Israel, in Tiberias, that you're not going to ask any questions of Rabbi Yochanan for seven years. This actually, um, <laughs> the, the commentaries try and work out why Rav put this condition on Rav Kahana, not to ask any questions of Rabbi Yochanan for seven years. On the one hand, it would make sense that he shouldn't make too big a name for himself. He keeps a low profile, even though the land of Israel and Babylonia uh, was 700 miles apart and in completely different political domains. Of course, Babylonia was in the was in Sassanid by now Sassanid Persia, 
after the Sassanid revolution and uh, the land of Israel was in the Roman Empire, was in the part of the Eastern Roman Empire. Nevertheless, keep a low profile. But the other reason commentators say is because it was a type of it was a type of penance that they asked uh, that Rav asked Rav Kahana to take upon himself. Uh, the penance not being for having killed a guy before the court, but a penance, in fact, for uh, having presumed to make judgment uh, in front of his teacher. And uh, even though he was, according to halakha, according to uh, some opinions in halakha, he was correct in what he did, nevertheless, he shouldn't have done that so quickly without checking with his teacher whether that was the right thing to do. And that was a kind of punishment. When you get there, humble yourself. Don't ask Rabbi Yochanan any questions. Even though I know, says Rav, that you are an extremely brilliant person uh, and you might even be Rav Yochanan's equal. Nevertheless, just don't ask any questions. All right. So he gets to the land of Israel. And then we start, really, we start the second part of the second phase of this fascinating Gemara. So he arrives in Tiberias and he goes into the study hall and he finds Reish Lakish sitting there, Rav Yochanan's brother-in-law. Now, obviously, Reish Lakish had a kind of second-in-command position. What he found was that he got there at the end of the day when Rav Yochanan, or the end of the morning session, when Rav Yochanan had already given over his classes, and Resh Lakish, the other great sage of Tiberias, is sitting there with the other students, the other rabbinic students, going over the day's material, going over the day's classes, making sure they understood. So Rav Yochanan, the big rabbi, gives the talk in the morning. Resh Lakish is there to make sure during the afternoon that everybody understands it. So that's what he found. He found Resh Lakish sitting there going over it. And obviously Resh Lakish finished and then he went. But there must have still been some rabbis milling around. So Amalahu Rav Kahana said to them, Resh Lakish Eicha, where's Resh Lakish? Where did he go? <laughs> Where did he go? Amrule, they said to him, Am I? Why do you want to know? Well, who are you? Why, why, why are you asking where Rish Lakish went? Why do you want to know? Amarlohu, so he said to them, Hi Kushia, hi Kushia. Look, I got this question on what he said about what Rabbi Yochanan's talk was. I got this other question, the high Piruka, the high Piruka. And this would be the answer to the question, and this would be the answer to the other question. In other words, he showed himself to be extremely clever. He said, I heard the revision of the class, but I got this question, this question, that answer, that answer, blah, blah, blah. He gave, he gave over to these rabbinic students, and they would have gone, whoa. So Amrulela Rish Lakish. So they went and they told Rish Lakish this conversation that this strange guy from Babylonia who turned up in the Bet Midrash had had with them about that day's class, how he completely dissected it and reconstructed it. So Azal Rish, when Rish Lakish heard this, Azal Rish Lakish, Rish Lakish went, so he goes to Rabbi Yochanan and he says, famous statement, Ari Alami Babel, a lion has ascended from Babylon. And therefore, you really should be very careful and take great 
care in your lesson that you're going to give tomorrow because a very, very sharp individual has just arrived from Babylonia and you don't want to be embarrassed. Just make sure that tomorrow's lesson is schmick and you've re you know reviewed all the material and, and, and you know it well because he's going to ask some tricky questions. Lemachar, uh, so Rabbi Yochanan says, okay, he got prepared. And Lemachar, the next day, Rav Kahana comes to the academy in the morning to hear Rav Yochanan. They put him, they put Rav Kahana in the front row. Now, this is very interesting. It's interesting on a number of different levels. <laughs> well, I have discussed this elsewhere when we talked about the great academies of Babylonia that they, that they used to sit in rows. So there were, in fact, seven rows of 10 rabbis, the, of, of the top 70 students of the academy. And that is a Babylonian picture. But here what we're seeing is we're seeing that idea transported to the land of Israel. We don't know if the Palestinian academies were structured like that with seven rows of students. And depending on where you sat, which row you sat in was depending, you know, was, was indicative of your rank in the academy. That has led some scholars to think that maybe this particular picture was um, a transposition of what was effectively a Babylonian idea onto the, a conjecture, onto the Palestinian Academy. But we're going to assume for the time being that those academies all work the same way. So they put Rav Kahana in the front row, the very front row, in front of Rabbi Yochanan, because they're thinking, well, this guy's going to ask some serious questions. So we'd better put him in the front row. Amar Shmata, but remember, what we know, what the reader knows and what they don't know is that his own teacher, Rav Kahana's own teacher, had told him, don't ask any questions for seven years. Now, if you were going to be very clever about that, you wouldn't have gone to the Bet Midrash the day before and made such a clever clogs of yourself. But now that he did that, they put him in the front row, but then he realizes, oh, I'm not supposed to ask any questions. So Rav Yochanan says the lesson, Veloakshi. Rav Kahana didn't say anything. Shmata Veloakshi. Rav Yochanan said some more lesson. Rav Kahana stayed stum. He didn't say anything. And as a result of him not asking any questions or making any comments, they demoted him rank by rank until he was sitting on the very last rank. So in, in, during the course of basically a morning, he got demoted seven ranks because he wasn't saying anything. Rabbi Yochanan said to his brother-in-law, to Rej Lakish, the Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, he goes, Arisha Amarta, that lion you were talking about that's come from Babylon, this great big lion, He's been made a fox. He didn't say anything. What we think has happened here, and the commentaries expand on what was behind Rabbi Yochanan's statement, is that it would appear that this guy deserves the humiliation that we gave him, because when he came to the Bet Midrash yesterday to show how clever he was, he just happened to uh, he just happened to know uh, that 
details of oh, sorry, that details of that particular lesson. Uh, but he's not actually that clever, and he was pretending, and therefore we're going to humiliate him and put him back uh, row by row. Because one imagines that they wouldn't have demoted him row by row unless Rabbi Yochanan had instructed them to do that. So Rav Kahana is sitting there in the back row, and he says to himself, Amar, actually he says to God, Yehirava, may it be the will of God, Dahani Shevadari, that these seven rows that I have been demoted through, they should actually be a substitute for the seven years that I'm supposed to be quiet. So he thought, okay, I've been, I have to be quiet for seven years, but in one day I've been demoted seven rows in the academy. You know what? I, 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 think, I think that's a good enough penance. So the seven years that Rav told me I had to keep quiet, that's been dealt with as far as Rav Kahala was concerned. He got up on his feet, and he said out loud to, every, to, the, to Rav Yochanan from the back row, you know what? Let, let the rabbi go back over the beginning of the whole thing, please. Amar and as soon as Rabbi Yochanan started speaking, Rav Kahana started pounding him with questions. Until they uh, promoted him yet again, all the way back to the front row. And he kept on hammering with questions and giving answers and questions and showing that he actually was way beyond what they thought that he, uh, that he was. Meanwhile, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan was sitting on seven cushions, on bestarki cushions or pillows of a sort. Every time that Rav Kahana asked a question that Rav Yochanan couldn't answer, they removed one of those cushions from him. And he kept on asking questions every time he would speak. Rav Kahana would pound him with more questions. Until they had removed all of the cushions from underneath him. Until Rabbi Yochanan was sitting on the ground. So by now Rav Kahana is on the front row, probably on a bench. And Rav Yochanan is sitting on the ground. By the way, this, this particular technique, a number of the commentators add that many of the great rabbis then and even now would go through exercises of personal humiliation such as that, not simply as an ethical exercise because it was believed and still is believed that humility is the great conduit of wisdom and knowledge. So they would do these exercises deliberately in order to try and get uh, more and greater understanding. So it could be that Rav Yochanan had the cushions removed constantly so that he would have the power to overcome the incredible questions of Rav Kahana, but it didn't, uh, it didn't help. He found himself sitting on the ground, and that was it. He got wiped out. This is Rav Yochanan. I mean, <laughs> this is the greatest sage in the land of Israel in the third century. Rav Yochanan Gavra Savahavim. And now Rabbi Yochanan, at this point, uh, well, he's a very old man by this stage. And uh, one of the things we know about him, 
that his eyebrows, he had these amazingly thick, long, old eyebrows, and they actually extended out and covered over his eyes. So if he wanted to see anything, he had to have his eyebrows lifted. So he said to the students, his attendants around him, lift up my eyes so that I can see this individual. I haven't actually seen him yet. He's sitting in the front row. I'd like to have a look at him, this tremendous lion that has come from Babylonia. They, they had a special silver implement, probably like a, like, like a spoon or something, and they lifted up his eyebrows. And he saw, when he saw Rav Kahana, he saw that his lips were parted because he had some kind of um, cleft lip or some kind of uh, deformity there, either from a wound or, 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 or born that way, that parted his lips in a certain way and Rabbi Yochanan thought that Rav Kahana was smiling at him in a kind of a mocking kind of way. Now, you don't do that. I'm not saying that Rav Kahana was doing that, but you don't do that. Rabbi Yochanan, as we've learned, and we learn in a number of other different places in the Talmud, the sages of the Talmud were dangerous dudes, and you didn't want to uh, experiment with their feelings in any way. So Rav Kahana thought, uh, sorry, Rav Yochanan thought that Rav Kahana was in fact uh, smiling at him and mocking him. So Chalash Date, so Rav Yochanan was hurt and his feelings were damaged by this. As a result of this, Venach Nafshei, Rav Kahana, died. Uh, it's not the only instance where someone who offended the feelings of Rav Yochanan ended up dying very quickly. And that's what happened. Now, one of the things that commentators don't seem to indicate, but I think is, a, is an important subtext of this Gemara, is the fact that that was kind of like a justice for what had happened back in Babylonia, although the halakha and although the Gemara doesn't critique Rav Kahana's behavior there in killing that defendant, except in respect of his having assumed authority in front of his teacher, nevertheless, there is a subtext that that wasn't necessarily the right thing to do because a type of justice, he dies here as a result of hurting uh, Rabbi Yochanan's feelings. Now, Lamachar, the next day, after Rav Kahana has died as a result of Rabbi Yochanan's hurt feelings, Rabbi Yochanan comes into the rabbis and he says to them, the next day he goes, Did you see how that Baba, I mean, I know he died, but did you see how he behaved? He was mocking me as though to say, you know, like I, I shouldn't have this on my conscience. I mean, the guy was clearly, totally out of order. They said to him, no, you got it wrong. He has a particularly, uh, peculiarly formed mouth. And that was his look. And he wasn't smiling at you. Well, you can imagine that uh, Rabbi Yochanan wasn't feeling very good about that. 
uh, he'd killed this uh, brilliant uh, man uh, based on a false, uh, based on a misunderstanding. So he decided right then he was going to go to, they had already buried Rav Kahana. And so he went to the cave where they buried him. So he, he saw that around the cave, I'm, I'm, I'm reading from the Gemara here, that's why I'm looking down. Uh, he saw that um, surrounding the cave was a serpent, a snake, a huge snake. This is a, uh, a whole symbolic motif that you find also in other places in the Talmud of a, of a snake. Some of the commentators say that uh, when a person dies, if you're a very righteous person, their yetzahara, their evil inclination, becomes a snake that uh, guards their tomb uh, during their death. So he encountered this particular snake. Amale, so he said to it, Achna, Achna, snake, snake. Petach pumech, open your mouth. And let the teacher go into his student. Now, the reason for opening the mouth is because the snake is surrounding the tomb with its tail in its mouth, forming a complete circle. So open your mouth and let me in means that open your mouth, take your tail out and open the space and I can go in. But uh, he didn't, the snake didn't open its mouth because Rav Yochanan had said, let the teacher come into the student, wouldn't open it. He said, well, okay, open your mouth and let one colleague come in and visit another. Didn't open. And it wasn't until Rav Yochanan said, let the student come into the master. That the snake opened up. So Rav Yochanan realized that he hadn't just killed some student, he killed someone who was one of, you know, even greater than he was. Barachame, and Rav Yochanan sought mercy. Vukme, and he resurrected him. That's, uh, how's that for unorthodox? Um, we get uh, quite a number of people who uh, get resurrected in the Talmud. Uh, the rabbis have that power. Um, and there are many, well, many, there are a few stories sprinkled throughout Talmud of people that get resurrected by rabbis, and the Talmud just considers that as uh, a pretty normal course of events. So Amale, so he said to him, after he'd resurrected him and brought him back to life, Amale, he said to him, If I had known that, your face had that particular peculiarity and you weren't smiling at me, but you just look like that. Lochal Shadati, I wouldn't have got hurt. And as a result of me not getting hurt, you wouldn't have died. Now that we've cleared that up, says Rabbi Yochalam, why don't you, why don't you come back to the Bet Midrash? Come back to the academy and we'll continue like it never happened. So Rav Kahana says to him, If you could seek mercy, please, that I'm not going to die again as a result of one of your moods, I'll go. 
But if you can't promise me that, I'm not going. Because frankly, and it's not, I don't feel like dying again. It's not, it's not my favorite hobby. Because, uh, well, this, these are very, very ambiguous words of the Gemara here, but most commentators seem to understand that uh, what Rav Kahana is saying is that, um, you know, it happened once that you could resurrect me, but I don't think it's going to happen again. And also, uh, frankly, uh, what's happened is happened, and there's not much we can do about it. Tayare, uh, so nevertheless, uh, Rav Yochanan uh, refreshed him some more and resurrected him. And Shayale called Sveik and Havele, and he asked him every question that he had. And Rav Kahana answered them every single question he had. There are two different uh, views amongst the commentaries about whether or not Rav Kahana stayed in his tomb and decided that he wasn't going to allow himself to be fully resurrected because he didn't want to die again or whether, in fact, he went with Rav Yochanan uh, back to the Bet Midrash and lived for many years after. We have different proof texts either way. But the interesting point is how this story ends, because he says to him, This is what Rabbi Yochanan said, and we have this statement elsewhere in the Talmud. This is what Rabbi Yochanan's famous statement to the rabbis of the, of the land of Israel was, Whereas I would have said that you're great learning in Torah to all of the rabbis of the land of Israel. Your great learning in Torah is the result of your efforts and it's yours. It actually belongs in Babylonia. And this is the reason why that is a very, very powerful ending for that story is that during the third century, we see this transition from the dynamic center of the Jewish world being in the land of Israel to being, in fact, <laughs> in Babylonia. Elsewhere in the Talmud, when Rav Kahana talks about this episode and he says that he was exiled, and only at that time could you say of someone that I was exiled to the land of Israel, because the land of Israel, even within the course of half a century, uh, was uh, from the end of the Tanaitic period, and as a result of the rise of Roman persecution and so on, was no longer the, it was a very great center of learning, but it was no longer the center of the Jewish world. And that is why, I mean, in great part, uh, what we see over the next couple of centuries is the development of the Babylonian Talmud that went on to form the basis of, uh, of subsequent halakha. If there is ever a conflict between the Palestinian and the Babylonian Talmud, we follow the Babylonian Talmud, even though the Babylonian Talmud was written outside the land of Israel. There is an idea within Jewish life that even with the great importance and centrality of the land of Israel, the center of the Jewish world is where the center of Torah learning is. Today, fortunately, we live in a remarkable generation where it's pretty much acknowledged that the center of Torah learning is the land of Israel. And that's one of the great signs of our generation that things are coming to a full resolution and fruition within Jewish history. So thank you for uh, following me through on that story uh, of, uh, of murder and resurrection and uh, lots of uh, intellectual competition and so on. It is a fascinating Gemara that has a lot of layers to it. 
And next week I'll be doing an entirely different unorthodox episode uh, as uh, part of our Monday lunchtime series. And I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.